Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I traveled to all these interviews from Barcelona. And our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast would not happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, to become one of our members and get an extra big interview every month, plus loads of bonus content. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Graham Hunter, and we'll bring you joy. Hi, lovely listeners. The big interview was fortunate enough to be in the grand leather-clad dungeons of the Hotel Duvan in Harrogate approximately 12 hours after Adrian made a howler for Liverpool against Atleti to go out of the European Cup. Unfortunately, our guest today, Paul Robinson, who analyses what's going through a keeper's fevered mind when he kicks the ball straight to an opponent instead of making an obvious pass or lumping it out of the stadium. Listen on to try and understand the life of a lonely goalkeeper. Paul Robinson is funny, articulate. He's part of a family that is extremely sports-talented. And he shared his time with The Big Interview because he's loved listening to our work and you're going to enjoy hearing this characterful, forthright, very intelligent new friend of The Big Interview telling you about his life, starting with the maddest man in football, John Budgie Burridge, and how he saw Tony Yaboa's thunder blaster for Leeds going into the net at Ellen Road. Here comes Paul. Part one, at least. Part two of Paul Robinson, just as good. We'll be right along in a couple of days. The Big Interview's back. Paul, welcome to The Big Interview. We've just been talking off camera about our social Tom Liu persuaded both of us to meet so I want to say right now thanks Tom fantastic nice to meet you um, and you thank this you this is the surroundings that you know very well we're, we're down in the snog aren't we <laughs> the hotel the van in Harrogate yeah, oh, yeah. it's a, a regular meeting place for me and the rest of my family I'll tell you, you are. use it quite often 
When I moved Christmas. to Harrogate, I think I might be jockeying with you for the Christmas Day booking. <laughs> it's sensational. And we could have met up last night, it turns out, but we didn't because I was too shy to phone you for a pint. Yeah. But we were doing the same thing. We were watching the Champions League, um, a competition which has to be close to your heart because of how you began in it, and we'll come to that later. But analytically, watching Liverpool go out to an Atleti side, which, in my view, played as alert and as snappishly and with as much concentration as they have all season. But in my view, they were going to be well beaten. And at 2-0, it looked like Liverpool would either hold or add, and then the world falls apart. Now, you must look at what Adrian did for Atleti's first goal, and analytically, you must have strong views on it. For an idiot like me, who's never <laughs> kept goal, and, and who's lived in Spain, where they're always coaching you about having a look before the ball comes to you in any passing situation, not just goalkeepers, and, and also the gift of peripheral vision. What do you imagine was going through Adrian's head, hypothetically? or what, when, when you look at that, what do you see when a goalkeeper doesn't look left, Milner's available... Neither does he lump out of, the, out of the ground, which was an option, and the ball goes straight to an opponent. When you're watching that, what emotions are you feeling? And analytically, how do you sort of break down what happened there? You look, you can see he was caught in about three different minds. Um, he's a goalkeeper at the moment who's playing with a, a massive lack of confidence. You see him in the Premier League the way he is. He's been beaten by shots that he should have saved. There's a lot of balls that come off him, as you saw again last night, in and around his body. He's not comfortable with his hands. He's blocking stuff. He's not getting it out of the box. He made a double save last night, but the first save, it was he should have dealt with it a lot better. He should have held it, made a decent recovery with it. But as you say, the, the one, the, the kick, he's not confident. He's been told to play out from the back. He's not Alisson. He can't play out from the back as well as Alisson can. It's not something that Adrian's done throughout his career. He's never been asked to do it in a team like Liverpool. When he came in first time for Alisson, I thought he did okay. I thought mm. he did reasonably well. Mm. But he's playing in a team that was playing very well. They were keeping clean sheets. They were winning games. Now, all of a sudden, he's come back in. The team's hit a little bit of a, not a blip, but in their season, they're not winning games. They're, they're first time, they're struggling to get results. They're letting goals in. And he's been questioned. And you can see that was on his mind last night. Teams are seeing that. They're hitting shots from distance. They're testing him. And they're making, making it like a weak point, if you like, and, and trying to, to exploit that. But last night, when the ball came back to him, you could see he wanted to play because that's what he's been told to play. But at the same time, you could see that he couldn't pick a pass and he kind of he wanted to get rid of it. He wanted to kick it down the field. But in the back of his mind, the manager told him not to do that. So he's caught between two minds and in the end, he ends up doing nothing. But then he gets back in position, which he's not in a, decent, not, he's not in a bad position for the shot. Yeah. He's a couple of yards off his line. But then just as he's about to hit the shot, he jumps off the ground. You see him, you look at the replay. He's about that far off the ground. So Should we stop there so that people who've watched it but have never kept goal yeah. or, or, or thought about goalkeeping. Yeah. One, why is that bad? Two, once he'd got himself recovered and he knows the ball's coming back at him, yeah. what should he be doing? Well, he should be he feet in contact with the ground. Listen, I've done it as a goalkeeper as well and you watch other goalkeepers in the Premier League doing it now. It's a natural... To get yourself set, you kind of had a little jump. But some goalkeepers have a tendency to jump higher than others. And Adrian last night, when he, when he went to set, he was about that far off the ground. So when the ball struck that far off the ground... You're not moving, are The way you? that the ball tra travels now, it's 15 yards closer to him. You look at it and it went two, two yards into the corner of the goal, like into the middle of the goal, and you think, he's got to save that. 
But when you actually look at it, he didn't give himself a chance of saving it because his feet weren't in contact with the ground. He couldn't move towards the ball. Is that a nervous thing? Is it like a tick? Sometimes, yeah, as goalkeepers that do. Little... Yeah, you, you, you've got a set position that you want to get into. His position off his line, cut two, three yards off his line. He, got, he recovered to a good position. Bad. Yeah. No, but then he went to set himself and with his feet not in contact with the ground, he couldn't get there. And I think he was beaten, to be fair, in, in all three goals last night. I think he could have done better with them all. Mm. I think the second one was pretty much the same with his feet off the ground. And then the third one was strange. I've watched it a couple of times. And it, it kind of goes through him in a one-on-one. Mm-hmm. I think the difference between the two, two teams last night, if it was a boxing match, it would have been stopped by a long way because Liverpool were outstanding. You, you thought, agree with that? I that, thought... That it was more than... In terms of pound for pound, it was more than a 2-0 margin. Oh, at Liverpool, first half should have been. But I thought Oblak was outstanding. I think he's a brilliant goalkeeper. I think he's a top-class goalkeeper. Mm. And as I say, if it was a boxing match, Liverpool would have won it. They'd have stopped it. But the difference, real difference between the two teams was Oblak and Adrian, the two goalkeepers. If Alisson was in goal for Liverpool last night, I genuinely believe they wouldn't have lost that game. And, you know, did you see what I saw? So you've talked about Adrian having a, a split mind about what he'd like to do, what he thinks he should be doing. Also, the noise, the, the pressure in your head. Milner, as the ball is beginning to come towards Adrian from the pass back, Milner's putting himself in position, so he's, he's, it's easier for an outfield player. He's read it. I struggle to understand, but there'll be a reason, whether it's just crowd noise or adrenaline, but he didn't take a look left. Because if, you, if he even thought, well, I'm, I should be playing it, you just take it on your right, a quarter turn, off it goes to Milner, and away they go. And effectively, I think, at that moment, you pass to Milner and Liverpool are in the next round. It's just it's a it's a goalkeeper that's lacking in confidence. Clearly, clearly not playing as well as he should be or wanting to be playing. Which gives you muddled, muddled thoughts. And straight away you're thinking you, he's trying to do things that he maybe shouldn't be doing, or he just gets caught in two minds. And he's, he can you, you feel for him because when you're in that situation, it, it doesn't go right. If if you do that nine times out of ten, it goes to one of your players, you get away with it. When you're for want of a better phrase, when you have him one, it goes to one of their players and they stick it in the corner. And then it snowballs from yeah, there. But yeah. as you say, if it was Alisson in goal, he gets it, opens himself out to James Milner. And I, I think if that first one wouldn't have gone in, the other two probably wouldn't have done either. No. When you're beginning, uh, because we've talked about, you know, we were grimacing last night watching the, the football where there was a pass across the, the penalty area. Now, I'm significantly older than you, but that was like foreboding. You know, school teachers and coaches would have put you in the jail if you passed across <laughs> passing, the penalty area. Passing in the penalty area, even now the rules have changed, so you can pass it in the penalty area as a goalkeeper. So what, what, was, what was life like as a young goalkeeper? What was the differences then thinking, well, I've got talent, people like me, I'm going to be a goalkeeper. You know, from then to now, what, what were the things that were going on then that are unrecognisable now? I just used to love playing football. I used to, I used to be a decent outfield player as well. Um, I used to play in goal for the sixth form at school when I went to secondary school. In my first year at secondary school, as a year seven, I'd play in goal for the sixth form and I'd play outfield to my own age. And I always used to say, I used to laugh, there was only one thing that stopped me from being a centre forward and it was about two and a half stone at the time. <laughs> <laughs> what, you had to put on? To yeah, be, yeah, yeah. I, think that's, I think we all know that's what... <laughs> but no, it got to the point of where it was a, a stick to what you're good at um, and goalkeeping was always something that I enjoyed. But as you say, it's changed so much un, unrecognisably over the years, as, as the game has as well. Um, it was a job of catching crosses, saving shots, and then kicking the ball down the pitch as far as you as can. As far as you possibly yeah. can. And jumping forward a little bit. When I went to Leeds as an apprentice um, at 16, I was third of three when I left school to go as an apprentice. Um, and an opportunity came 
with John Burridge, who was my goalie coach at the time. Oh, <laughs> How long have you got? There's a, a bundle of stories on I went with Budgie. But anyway, Budgie took me on loan. He said, you're soft as shit, you need toughening up. He took me to Durham City on loan in the Northern League. I had to go and live with Budgie and his missus for three months. And he toughened me up by taking me to Durham City, and they loved me because I could kick at the length of the pitch. How many set-ups did he make you do per oh, day? I, mate, I tell you a story about when we went to... We used to go to Newcastle's training ground when he used to train at university. And I think at the time he was banned from the training ground. So he'd have me up at five or half five in the morning, running through Durham City, so a bag of balls on his back, jumping over the fence in the corner, running over the canal at the back, training on one of the back pitches before anyone else would get in and see him, and then going back to his house. Let's tell people who this is. This is John <laughs> Budgie Burridge. Yeah. Um, he was part of that team. Of the, he was part of Crystal Palace. He's played for just about every club in oh, Britain, including my own beloved Aberdeen. goalkeeper of Man, Man City, wasn't he? Something like that. And as he rightly says, there was a stage where he was very, very good indeed. <laughs> he was a really good goalkeeper. Yeah. I mean, I remember him when he was young, fearless. Yeah. You know, one of this breed of smaller goalkeepers, yeah. but flying about his goal. Passionate, absolutely obsessed. Relatively with confident. Yeah, you could say that. He wasn't shy, <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> But like to this day, like I was at the classical the other week, commentating with Simon Hanley, Michael Loudrop by our side, yeah. and as part of our team, the Facebook group was Kev Campbell, um, Tim Lee, and co-commentator as well was was Budgie, and Budgie was at the classical in his in his goalkeeping. <laughs> he gets places that water couldn't get, mate. Honestly, <laughs> what was Budgie doing there? He's commentating <laughs> on the game for Facebook in 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 the Middle East region. He wears his goalie gloves all the time still now. Honestly, mate, nice guy, wrong planet. He is honestly, he's wired to the moon. He is brilliant. He is, I don't think he'd deny that either. He, no, he wouldn't. He'd tell you exactly the same. I mean, he used to come to Leeds and coach us as kids, and he used to turn up, I mean, car boots full of like gear and sell all the t shirts and stuff at the back of his car. The gaffer at the time said, Budgie, you can't do that. You're going to have to stop doing that. He was just. Well, now, for the people that don't believe me, when I was best, best man and my best mate, and the uh, stag was in uh, Hexham, so we went to Hexham races, yeah. and we're staying at Slaley Hall. And on the Saturday at Hexham races, I looked at—I wouldn't call it the grandstand, but there's a sort of bar in that Hexham. I love Hexham, so I'm not knocking it. There's a sort of grandstand, and up on the roof, there's this sort of figure in a long crocodile Dundee leather coat, <laughs> a, a mad crocodile Dundee hat, snakeskin cowboy boots, and he's up there, and it's a good height. And he's, why he's gone up there, I don't know. But he's just won the league with Blythe Spartans. I think as player manager. Yeah. And he's threatening to jump off. He's been his players have bet him that he won't jump off the grandstand. Where are you this day? I think he tried to lift his coat out to get some <laughs> wings and air under his wings. Like honestly, that. that doesn't surprise me with him. With some of the stories that we had with him, he was honestly. And you, was, you get to live but with his, him. His heart is so genuine. Yeah. He's just so passionate about football. You'll read stories about him you know, having fruit thrown around the room to catch fruit and his missus throwing stuff around. And everything you read about him that you think, God, that can't be true, is 100% true. And more. He's as mad as a box of frogs, but he is one of the nicest, most genuine people, passionate people, and he helped me so much in my did career. He, did as a did kid. he change yeah. your uh, perception or ability or attitude? Attitude. He made me grow up quickly as a man. Um, yeah. as a per- I left home at 16 as an, to be an apprentice for £37 a week. To live in Diggs, we were the first lot that lived on the training ground at Leeds with these new state-of-the-art training grounds. And then all of a sudden you're training with the first team because you're a goalkeeper. You get there's, Obviously there's a small number, so you get put in with the first team, with the first team goalie coach. And that was a baptism of fire straight away with, with Budgie. Um, yeah, these sessions were 
sharp, lively, hard. You could not have a day off with him. No. We'd, we'd start an hour, an hour and a half before everybody else in the gym playing head tennis. He'd be sweating like a bull mastiff before he'd even gone out, going up for headers at the head tennis net. He'd be like sticking elbows on, the, on me, the other kids, and the, the competitiveness and the passion and the will to win. That's something and that's the drive. good to learn, isn't it? It was so infectious. So inf- it was, it's so old school. And it's probably, well, half of the stuff that Budgie used to do you wouldn't get away with in the modern world now. Yeah. But it was just such a good grounding. And, like, so you were, you were born locally. So when you get that first clutch of talented boys living at the training ground, more or less, that has to feel, at that stage already, like a dream come true. It was strange. It was odd leaving home at that age. You, where um, was home? Beverly? Beverly. I was born in Beverly, yeah. Which, for those who don't know, is there's an Oliver Race course there, too. Yeah, East it's, Yorkshire. It's within, you know, touching distance oh, of where you have to move to. minutes, an hour to Leeds. Yeah. My dad used to take me three nights a week to train, or two nights a week to train it um, at the training ground. And then, obviously, the, the time came to be whether you are going to be an apprentice or not. We had a successful youth team uh, up from, like, 14s, 15s, 16s. And then the time came, one of the nights at training, you, you went in um, for a meeting with your parents. And if you basically, it was a, a yes or a no as to whether you were going to be offered uh, an apprenticeship, an apprenticeship with the promise of a pro or a one-year apprenticeship, because you can only sign a pro to when you're 17. 17 yeah. So it was either a one-year apprenticeship and two-year pro or a two-year apprenticeship and a year pro. And the lads that came out with a tracksuit under their arm were the lads that were in. The lads that came out without weren't. Unfortunately, I was one of the ones that did. Was it an intoxicating feeling? What, did Leeds matter to you as a club? Yeah, um, because I was there for so long. But, but as, you, as you're growing up, I mean, what's your first experience of Ellen Road? Who are the players you remember? What was happening at the club? Before you know that you're a talented footballer, are Leeds United a big deal in your life? I remember, oh, yeah, I remember ball boying because I used to go and watch Hull City as a kid. My granddad used to take me to watch Hull City. And it's at the time, Grimsby Town were in a, a higher league. I think they were in it was Division 1 or 2 at the time. So the weeks that Hull City were away, we'd maybe go and watch Grimsby. Leeds were always the top team, but they were just that little bit too far out the area and we never got to go there. But when I joined the academy there, we could be ball boy for all the home games. So as a kid, you got to watch you know, the likes of Gary McAllister, Gordon Strachan, John Lukic was the goalkeeper at that time. Um, and as it, it progressed and the team got better under Howard Wilkinson, the likes of, of Tony Yeboah came in. And I was ball boy for that game. You know, the, the Liverpool game, the volley. If you watch that game very, very closely, as he hits the volley, there's some spotty little adolescent kid in a very, very pastel blue top with great big yellow lapels by the side of the goal who does that. Having shouted, shoot! And that's me. <laughs> and the irony is, it's David James that was in goal who I went on to take his England place and I was sat ball boy behind the goal for that Tony Boa goal. We, we've, we've done one of these interviews with James Milner yeah. who was ball boy, I think, on, I think probably the night of the Barcelona game, I think. Right. At any rate, he, he was a ball boy. Nowadays... Ball boys are the sort of twelfth man. Yeah. Because what you see is it's like basketball court. Well, you look at Liverpool last night as well. You saw the way that the ball boys, when they were chasing the game, all of a sudden the ball boys got ammunition supplied to them. As soon as the ball went out, it was back in. Um, but there, when I was ball boy, it was just a case of crouch behind the the hoardings and just get the ball back if it comes to you. No instructions. Nothing fly. Oh yeah, I mean, if they were if they were one 0 up with five minutes to go, uh, the manager would come out and tell the U team coach. He'd drag him down, and the U team coach you could see him walking around the pitch. He knew what was coming. Just slow down a bit, lads. Lose the, lose the ball. Oh, lose yeah, the ball. That, that, don't you? If that ball comes near you, do not get up. Just let it go. <laughs> and like, with the first time you ball boy, 
Does it feel pressurised? Do you feel the eyes in the back of your head when you're sitting with the crowd behind well, it's you? It's the or? first time you really get to be amongst the crowd. It's the first time you're, you're actually down there. Okay, you go and watch football, you've seen a lot of football, but it's the first time you actually think, whoa, this is what the players feel like, this is what it's like to be at this level. And I don't know whether it's consciously or subconsciously that they do that with the academy boys, because mm. my boys are in the academy at Leeds now, and they do exactly the same. And he absolutely loves going on a Saturday or a Wednesday, whenever it is, to ball boy for the first team. And whether it's just to give the lads a little bit of a taste or just a bit of an experience. But when you're there, I mean, you learn so many new words as well. He's come back <laughs> the first few times that he's come back. What? What's this? <laughs> what, Czech or Italian or Portuguese? Uh, yes, yeah, all that kind of Old-fashioned Anglo-Saxon. Uh, very, very old-fashioned Anglo-Saxon from the cop at, at, the, uh, at the end. Because he's a goalkeeper as well, he gets put behind the goals. So he gets to hear all the, the choice words. Dad, I heard this today. Can I say it? <laughs> I said, well, say, say it quick and I'll let you know. <laughs> So no, it's good. But as I said, proper that's, education. That's the time as a, as a kid you, you get your first real taste of it. Um, Do you get a couple of quid in a Mars bar, or what's the story? I think you used to get a, a Mars bar at half time, or a, a bag of crisps or something, and a hot drink. But it was just a, I think your parents got a ticket for taking you, and you got nice. And it's pretty much the same now. That's exactly how it is now. Been that part of the club, and then as you grow, you obviously become an apprentice. I got a taste of going into the club early because, as one of the the so-called better youngsters, if you like, they'll bring you in on school holidays. Mm. So I used to go to Ellen Road uh, as a, a youngster, um, like sometimes Alan Smith, Jonathan Woodgate, my era, that two or three of us would go in on school holidays and we'd join the apprentices who would change in the away team dressing room or at Fullerton Park, the changing rooms at the top, and you'd be doing jobs with them, what they do jobs for the first team, where basically they'd make you do their jobs. And that's the first time you, you really got a feel of you were around... The first thing, that's the first time you actually mm. feel like you, a, a footballer, if you know what I mean. This is me. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And all of this prepares you quite well for um, 1997 against Crystal Palace because that's a sparkling little side that you have that, you know, before your career's even begun, you're an FA Cup winner, which is... <laughs> that's one way to look at it, yeah. It's a fact. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, it must have felt for the city, for the, because everybody obviously wants the first team, whatever city you're attached to, to win. But there's a deep love of our kids are coming. There are quality kids yeah. at every club. That whisper, ah, next generation, don't worry, ah, the kids are brilliant. And, and your group was extremely good, eh? And you beat Crystal Palace in the final. But I don't know how you get to the final or what that whole thing feels like. And I also don't understand, because I don't think Alan Smith plays in the final or I don't think he's in that group. Because you and Harry Kuehl are. Yeah, I, I'm think, I'm as with sure Mabry. I think Alan Smith was. I'm not sure, uh, maybe because he's, he's a bit younger than me, Smudge, so he might, yeah. I can't remember the team. Woodgate did, Kuehl, Maybury, 
they're a strong team, really strong team that year. And we were that strong again. We got to the semi-final again the next year without the old, because we were the first generation. We were like the first years. And without the second years, we got to the, the semi-final again the year after. Paul Robinson, Al Mabry, Jonathan Woodgate, Damien Lynch, Harry Kuehl, yeah. Kevin Dixon, Tommy Narvik, Tommy Narvik. Stephen McPhail could play a lot bit. What a great player. What a, foot. What a fantastic player. Yeah. Uh, Wesley Boyle, Matthew Jones, Lee Matthews, Stuart Gore and Alan Smith. Alan Smith a yeah. sub. Yeah, because he wasn't an apprentice at that time. He was a year younger than us. So Smudger was still at school. He was still a schoolboy because we were obviously, we were the first years and he was the, the next lot coming up, but he was that good. He got put up into, into the team with us. But as you say, it was a, a great generation to play in. We had such a, a strong team. Paul Hart was the manager and he had a guy with him called Robin Ray and Eddie Gray. Um, Hero of mine. Paul Hart used to put the fear of God into us with just the way that he was. With kids, he was brilliant looking back in hindsight but you used to you have to tell the line with him the jobs had to be spot on the performance had to be spot on your fitness the running everything in an old school way but a modern way of thinking but now so with the, the jobs and, and that side of things we were we lived on site so it wasn't he, he never used to let you go back to your rooms until the jobs were checked yeah you had a, a gaffer this, in the second years there was a gaffer and he was in charge of going around one of the boys like the captain and he was in charge of going around checking all the jobs making sure all the jobs were done so in other words, you chief sneak. If the jobs weren't done, no, he was the one that got it off Paul Hart. If the jobs weren't done, he'd be in the office done, and then he'd have to give it to the lads. If the jobs weren't done or anything wasn't up to scratch, then if Paul Hart came down from the offices, take cover, he knew what was coming. <laughs> but it was, it was a discipline, and it was he knew what a talent we had. And we had a team. We played in the Northern Intermediate League. Um, for, I remember my first year there, we lost one game that year in the, the league. That was it. We lost 1-0 at home to Sunderland. I still remember it to this day. At home, first game, it was about first five or six games of the season. And what used to happen is we used to play on a Saturday morning and our, all our parents used to come up. Mm. And then, obviously not the Irish boys or the international boys, but our parents would take us home after the game on a Saturday. And then we'd have to be back in the digs for eight o'clock on the Sunday night. So you got Saturday afternoon, Good Sunday enough. at home and back. Um, and we lost 1-0 at home. It wasn't a lack of effort, lack no. of uh, work hard. It was just one of them things. But he didn't think that. He wasn't happy. Well, we didn't perform. Don't accept defeat. This wasn't good enough. That wasn't good enough. By the way, none of you are going home tonight. To which he opened the door and told all the parents that they can all depart because none of the lads are coming home tonight. They've got jobs to do. Sunday morning up at the training ground, running around the training ground. Hence the reason we never lost another game for the rest of the season. So I suppose I should really ask um, seriously, when you make your um, league debut yeah. against Chelsea, yeah. Who was man of the match? Uh, Let's not mess about here. <laughs> Who carried the champagne away at the was end it of the was it? I think we both know it was. <laughs> you were ready, is what I would say, because Nigel's ribs weren't right. Yeah. It's Chelsea, a decent Chelsea side, yeah. a good one. You made a lovely save from Loudrop, if I remember rightly, but your man of the match. To, to, to what extent does the formation that you've had mixed with your ability help you? dominate a situation where I think you're 18 or 19 maybe 18 I 18, can't remember yeah, 18 maybe just yeah and you're you're up against a right good side and you win man of the match and you treat it as if you know I remember you saying you were nervous mm. but you treat it as if you were a, a, a long time pro the formation adds as much to that occasion I guess as the ability well does. I've been training with the first team a while I've been in and around the first team and as you say Nigel did his ribs but at that time I was third third choice goalkeeper Mark Beanie was number two and he was obviously not match sharp because he's not played because if Nigel's fit he plays and it had been a long run of games for him 
So I think midweek, midweek that week there was a reserve game, and Mark being said, you know, what, I'll play and that I'll get myself right, or you know, just get myself ready for the weekend. And then he ruptured his Achilles midweek, and then all of a sudden, from me thinking, great, I'm going to be sat on the bench yeah. watching the first team yeah. Chelsea. This is a great experience for me. All of a sudden, it becomes real that there's a potentially they're going to be playing. Um, I think they they tried to get a, a goalkeeper in an emergency loan because I was so young at that time, um, because of what had happened to the two goalkeepers. But it just got to the end of the week, and it was a case of look, you're going to be playing. So it was great. I was uh, very nervous, apprehensively looking forward to it. Uh, as you say, against a very very good Chelsea side, difficult day as well. I remember it. It was sunny. It was windy. It was raining. It was one of them days where you got all the seasons in one day. I always remember the first five or ten minutes. The, it was a corner. I might have made a save or it had gone wide or something. Went to get the ball. Dennis Wise comes running in, picks the ball up and he goes, I'm swinging this right in on top of your head and you're going to get smashed. So you're thinking straight away, boy, here we go. This is great. Loved it. Loved <laughs> That's it. definitely what you thought oh, first thing. Yeah, loved it. Because not every reacts to Dennis or words like that but that that's way. A challenge. That's a challenge thrown down to you. So straight away you're like, come on then. Bring it on. Yeah, I'll get this one. This is mine. Or, but you have to be careful not to be sucked in to make bad decisions yeah. because it's very, very good gamesmanship and good, good mind games from him because obviously as a youngster, he thinks, right, going to draw him out now or make him do something that he wouldn't want to do. There'd been a tumult because the focus was on you coming in there yeah. and you get a handful of games well in advance of, of your breakthrough. But what, what was the club like then? Because George had arrived yeah. and made Leeds really competitive in my view helped nick the title off Arsenal with a big, big result at the end of the season. And I suppose George, Gunnar George, um, in Leeds, I think initially might not have been all that welcome, but he'd made the side really powerful, I thought. Yeah. Full of good talent as well. But there'd been a tumult all season about whether he was leaving or going, whether Martin O'Neill was coming in. That's right, yeah, Martin O'Neill was touted for a long time. And David O'Leary was the choice eventually of Peter Ridsdale. What was that, as an observer, what was that like? You don't really forge an opinion as a youngster because you're kind of carried away with what's you know around you. You just you're happy to be a part of it. You don't. George Graham was uh, a figure. Somebody like Paul Hart ruled with respect, aura, and you, he was um, a dominant figure. If you like the, the aggressor, not an aggressor, but somebody who ruled with a very strong opinion. And you just as a youngster, you, you have to respect that. And you don't really forge them. You're just happy to be part of the squad, training every day. Um, and me at that age being given my opportunity being given my, my chance in the first team whether it was for two games five games ten games whatever it was it was just it was a ride that I was just happy to be on but it was one of them at that age you know it's coming to an end so you're not disappointed for, for when you come out of the team it's kind of a done that now that was it was kind of a relief when you came out assimilate start build I've, up again I've done that now I've, yeah. I've, I've proved I can do that now I'm still very very young but I've been in I've done it I've proved I can do it which flipping forward was different the second time I went in because I got 20 odd games and I got pulled out and then I saw my arse spat my dummy out and wanted to leave because you think you can do it over a, a longer period of time um, but at that time the club as you say it was going through manage, managerial transition as I say as a youngster you, you don't really get involved with that Paint me some pictures then because we've lost some of these characters a wee bit of light. So, for example, you wouldn't have dealt with him often, but Peter Ridsdale, yeah. did you deal with him? Yeah. What was he like? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, he's a man who followed his dream. Absolutely followed his dream. A passionate Leeds United fan. There's, you know, you talk about the gross mismanagement, the overspending. He followed his dream. He financed that club to almost the, the point of 
ultimate glory, the European title, which he, which he wanted to, to achieve. Um, he was always on side for the players. He'd, he'd travel away with us. And he was a man who was just very, very passionate about his football club, about his managers, about his players. And we'd, we'd have a European nights, we'd have away trips. We'd, we'd go, we'd get a result in Europe. The manager will say, right, we'll have dinner together. We'll have a couple of glasses of wine in the bar together tonight. Knock it on the head at midnight bed. We'll have a couple of glasses of wine, a bit of a sing song. And he was there, he was with us and he was part of the group. I've got a lot of respect for the man. You know, there's questions over whether it was his fault, the way that the club was grossed in his management, whether he was wrongly advised or however that came about. Mm. But at the time and the bubble that you're in, it was one hell of a bandwagon to be on. That's interesting that you describe it, that bubble you're in, because a lot of clubs or a lot of groups of players wouldn't have found time for the money man being in there. They, it would have been hard for a non-football person to have been accepted in. Yeah. To be honest with you, in a lot of places, he'd have been laughed at behind his back about having, yeah. oh, he wants to be one of... And, and footballers was, are a tight clan. It was a, but it was a tight clan, but we were a wider clan because they, they, we, they would travel together with like when we went to Europe, you know, the European nights that we experienced in the Champions League, we'd travel together on a plane. They did charter a plane for us, but there'd be the manager, the chairman, the staff, uh, the press, some of the, the press would come with us, then there'd be the directors, and then there'd be like a corporate trip. Leeds United had a travel company at that time, Leeds United Travel. My dad and Jonathan Woodgate's dad travelled Europe in the best style that they've ever been in, who went to every game. My dad and Woody's dad never missed a game. They'll tell you the nights in, in Rome, at the San Siro, different places. And that was all thanks to Ridsdale's vision and what he wanted to do for the club. And it was one big family and it was a big extended family. And it wasn't one of these teams or clubs that the players were inaccessible. Mm. The players were always accessible. We didn't get on a private jet just for the players. There'd be a corporate trip with us behind us as well. That matters. All right, we might as well. We, we may as well go through a different channel at the airport or we, we don't go this, the same way or we get off a plane and we get on a bus and go to the hotel. There's levels of privacy and security that a team need. But it was one big Leeds United family at that time. And as I say, it was a bandwagon that was phenomenal to be on. And at the t- you didn't realise what was going on. Nobody at that time, from a player's point of view, were thinking about finances, were thinking about money, thinking how the hell is the club affording to do this or why are you doing this? I mean, you were on great bonuses for Champions League. You were on bonuses per point in the Champions League. Wages were good. Everybody was happy. There was no kind of foresight three years down the line. Mm. Well, what if this... It's the buffers. What if this comes off the rails? No. There's not even, it, it's, it's not your job for any, it's, but no. under any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Looking back, I don't know if it was anybody's job. I don't know if anybody had done that. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But saying about Peter Ridsdale, and I genuinely think he was uh, a businessman, a mm. chairman, mm. but uh, at heart a real supporter who followed his dream and lived his dream to almost an inch of making it. European Cup semi-final. Yeah, Valencia. As every reveller who's ever had a big night says when the consequences come home the next day, it was a hell of a ride. Yeah. And again, paint a little picture, if you will. Pick somebody, because I noticed that as you're coming in at first, Lucas Redebi is around. Yeah. People talk about him as an exceptional character. I have to ask you about the Haaland Keane feud starts just before you debut it starts around about the time that you're winning the Youth Cup against Crystal Palace but you get to know Alfinger Haaland who has this notorious feud with Keane whose boy now already yeah. is just about the number one exciting oh, superstar striking prospect in the world yeah. I don't know about which of it, but, but tell us about some of the characters there the people who stand out for you the, the 18, 19, 20-year-old Paul Robinson who's like, this geezer's different. 
Lucas was different. As you, you pointed out, Lucas, we, we call him the chief. He was so laid back he could fall over. Nothing phased him. His ability to read a game. He's, he played with so many injuries. His knees were hanging off. He's, you know, his ankles, he was struggling every week. But to play at the level that he did and the ability that he had. And he was always one, you know, there was... At that time, it was a very jovial dressing room and there was a definite pecking order. And as a youngster, you come in and, you know, you make the teas. Back in them days, you make the teas. When you get on the team bus on the way home, you get everybody's dinner on the way home. You clean the bus after the, on the way home. Even as a first-team player? If you just start and you're just coming into the first team, if you're the youngest on the bus, mate, you're making cups of tea and getting the dinner. <laughs> and, and, and that's how it was. But Lucas would be one of these that, no, 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 you're all right, I'll get it, don't worry. Or he'd be at the back giving you a hand. Do you know, he's, it was nothing. There was no ego, no side to him or anything. He'd be like, Chief, do you want a brew? He said, I'll come and do it, that kind of thing. He was, he was just a genuinely nice man. He wasn't a stereotypical footballer, but his, his ability on the pitch now, looking back, was, was phenomenal. There was big characters in that team. I mean, the Gary Kelly is a huge, huge character. Um, one of my good friends, even now, Ian Hart, left back. The, the quality that we had in that team. Smashing you to the ball. Um, big for Dukes up front. Harry Kuehl, Lee Bowyer. Um, there, there was a lot of talent, but a lot of characters in that team. And then you brought the likes of Rio Ferdinand into that later on, um, when you know when the club was getting stronger. The the dressing room was it was a tough school. Jason Wilcox as well, very very big character. There was a lot of big characters fighting for status, and it was a very very tough school to come into. Then on that subject, we've got a sponsor, it's Bet365, Bet and they want to know who's the best central defender you played behind. But all the Top, top quality yeah, footballers. Yeah, there's a lot. It's a, yeah, but it's got to be a personal thing for you. There's a lot. Hierarchically, one may be better than the other, but for you? I, I love playing with Ledley, Ledley King. Um, a lot's been made out of Ledley with his injuries and the way that he, he didn't train. That's not true. He did train, but he trained in a different way. He had his problems with his knees, um, but he would train in the gym. He'd do his rehab. If you could get him on the grass on a Thursday or Friday before a Saturday, if he trained fully, during the week, week in and week out, he would have been a top, top class player. Just his ability to read the ball, to read the game. And he could play as well. Um, I remember a couple of times Martin Yole played him in a holding midfield role. And I thought he was fantastic in that holding midfield role. The time that I spent with Ledley at Spurs and in the England setup, you could see what quality he had. But it was a tough, really tough question. I mean, John Terry, mm-hmm. Jonathan Woodgate, Rio Ferdinand, Sol Campbell, Lucas Radderby. Really, really tough selection. A lot, a lot of centre-half to choose from. Not many bad ones in that list, to be fair. No. And mentality unites them because you'd say John Terry and, say, Jonathan Woodgate were different kind of footballers. Yeah. Probably Rio and Saul, different again, different how much they liked the ball, what they wanted to do positionally. Do they go first to the ball? Are they reading and looking after the second challenge or whatever? But I think strength of character and winning mentality probably unites them. Yeah, absolutely. And centre-halves have that. And obviously I've been lucky enough to play with a lot of good centre-halves, but very, very different ones. Ball-playing centre-halves, defending centre-halves. JT was probably the ultimate put-your-body-on-the-line, literally-die-for-the-cause type centre-half. Whereas Rio, he's got that in him, but he's a more elegant centre-half, quicker, gets himself out of trouble, ball plays. I think Rio was probably one of the first centre-halves, but real ball-playing centre-halves who wants to get, rather than just kick the ball down the field, wants to get on the ball and play. But no, I was... So I was fortunate. My first ever roommate was a centre half when I was uh, when I was a kid coming into the, the the first team squad at Leeds. I roomed with David Weatherall. If you remember David Dude, Weatherall, yeah. and he was I think he was a a soft option to break the young lad into the, the team because he was such a nice guy, really placid, 
wouldn't have, have a bad word to say about anybody. He wouldn't go cutting my shoes up while I was asleep or playing any pranks on me. So I think it was a safe bet. But Weathers was just so straight down the middle. Like, get into the room. Do you want a cup of tea or anything? No, no, I'm fine. Like, lights, he'd be watching telly and then he'd turn the lights off at nine o'clock and just say goodnight. And I'm laid there like a kid, like, <laughs> Weathers, it's nine o'clock. But you don't say anything, I don't do anything. I just remember laying there for a little while. But no, he's... He's, he's, he's quite firm on the pitch, guy. I thought. Yeah, very good, very good centre-half. Scored the goal for but Bradford, I think, that put yeah. Leeds in the Champions League. Yeah. But no, he's, he's another character that wasn't a stereotypical footballer, as you can see by the job he's doing now. The, uh, is it the Football Association or the, the Premier League, whoever he's working for? Very knowledgeable, very clever guy. Were you a talker to your centre-halves? Did you hector them? Yeah, hugely believed in it. Hugely believed in it. If you can handle the troops in front of you, if you can make them do their job, or if you can make them work harder, it cuts your workload down. The harder you work to pull their strings, to keep them away from your goal, the less you have to do. And footballers love an excuse, and they love a little bit of of downtime, and they love a, a, a relax and a switch off. But if you're constantly in their ear, and they constantly hear your voice... They just think, oh, I'll have a breather for five seconds. But if you're in the rear, they won't. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true. Graham Hunter and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us, at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.